Let's go, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to episode 10 one zero of the Founding Fellows podcast. As always, I'm your co-host, Zach Rins. We're joined by Braden Hine. You're looking like Buzz Lightyear over there. Buzz, Buzz Lightyear today. How's it going, buddy? <laughs> uh, it's going. I think we got a heavy episode today. No, uh, no real sports to talk about. We're going heavy on politics and a little bit of uh, the airline industry. It's even tied into politics. So why don't you get us uh, get us started? Yeah, let's just dive uh, right into it here. Um, I was woken up this morning, 10.09 a.m. by an emergency alert. I was like, uh-oh, you never want to see an emergency alert on your phone, right? You assume somebody's in trouble, something's not not going how it should be. But this emergency alert was to uh, let me know that there's a stay-at-home order in uh, Ontario, which I'm pretty sure everybody knows, yep. regardless of whether you're on social media, anything you know that there's a stay-at-home order in Ontario right now, whether you uh, agree or disagree with it. I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit as well. Um, but I just didn't see, I don't understand the use of the emergency alert alert in that situation. Um, I thought the emergency alerts were supposed to be used for when there's typically a child in a critical danger. Uh, I feel bad for people that were like working night shifts and stuff like that, like nurses that have just got off the front line or whatever, they get woken up to an emergency alert. It just didn't seem necessary to me. What do you think about uh, the use yeah. of that? I think mine may have came earlier than that because I know there's a uh, discrepancies between when people are actually getting them. Yeah. But I think mine was actually around midnight. I want to say I could be totally wrong. I could have just looked at my phone in the middle of the night, but I thought it was. So um, you had one like at night even. I think so. Yeah. Which is, yeah. But as you just said, right. Those people work in night shifts or frontline workers and stuff. Uh it's such a gray area, right? Because it's it is important that the public knows it. So long as that we can contain the virus or try to, obviously that's their goal. Mm-hmm. But as you said, right? It's we're used to them being for missing children, et cetera, et cetera, things in, in you know, dire need that you need to stress, and everyone needs to be alert to look out for. So I'm sure a couple of people were definitely pissed off this morning or last night when they received the message. But what are you going to do? As they say, what are you going to yeah. do? It's in the past. I wasn't like pissed off or anything by it. I was just kind of surprised about the fact that uh, this is how the emergency alert function, which is an incredible function. If you complain about emergency alerts for a child that's in critical danger, you're a scumbag. Uh, yeah, yeah. Wait, I don't think there's many people out there that do, but I know there are some. And I, I was just surprised to see the use of the emergency alert in in this scenario. Yeah, no, and and. Talk, now we're on the topic of the stay-at-home order and kind of everything that it encompasses. What's what are your thoughts on the on the new lockdown uh, measures? Um, I, as always, what I've come to expect with the Ontario government at the the provincial government here is a whole lot of gray areas, and it seems like we've got that again. Uh, it's not overly clear uh, what can and cannot be done with this new stay-at-home order, like what's what's considered essential like are we like is bed bath and beyond making candles in their factories still or something like you know like it's it's just such a gray area still and i'm not surprised to see that come from the from the government again i don't necessarily agree or disagree with it i think we absolutely need to get the situation under control in in ontario because our hospitals are nearing capacity which i mean we can get into that hospital debate as well why weren't we more prepared why are there yeah. not field hospitals? Exactly. If you look at Wuhan, Wuhan set up a field hospital. And I don't know if, if it was just over a week or just under a week, but they had a thousand bed hospital set up 
to relieve the pressure off of their medical system. And they were able to do that in a fraction of the time that we had to prepare for the second wave. So I I wish it wasn't necessary to go to this, uh, this length of the stay at home order, but I don't necessarily think that it's the worst idea in the world. What do you think? Yeah, we can only give so much credit to the Chinese, right? Because they are communists. And obviously, it's probably a bit easier to get uh, stuff pumped out when you're communist, opposed to, you know, Canada. But as you said, we should probably have field hospitals set up. And I actually heard an interesting uh, viewpoint from talking about the field hospitals the other day. And it was actually that the lack of doctors and nurses actually capable to demand those hospitals. Yeah, I figured that might be an issue. But, you know, there's the vaccine isn't the only thing that is going to be preventative for this virus. There's actually therapeutics coming out right now. And I think we can dive deeper into these therapeutics and the science behind them and maybe the next episode, because it's very interesting, but you have late stage trial therapeutics coming out that are actually very effective in treating those with severe cases of COVID-19. And through my research, I've seen that it doesn't really matter the strand of COVID-19. It's more so what it's capable of doing with entering a, you know, certain getting across certain blood barriers in the body and helping the system kind of work in sync with itself to get rid of a virus. So I think when something like that comes along and it should, it should uh, shortly, there's actually a certain one that I'm thinking of, but as I said, we'll get more specific in the next episode, we should be setting up those field hospitals, et cetera, and, and starting to really open up the public. Because if we have a product like a therapeutic, you know, there's a lot of positives and benefits to it, right? It's not, if you're an anti-vaxxer, you shouldn't have a problem with a therapeutic. The one that I'm thinking around has been around for 10 plus years in trials, looking at very little to no side effects for the common person for, for most people. And it's something that I want to say is in the ballpark of 85 to 90, 95% efficacy of treating severe cases of COVID-19, as well as it's in trials right now, I believe phase two for treating long haulers of COVID. So if you can get a product like this out there, why shouldn't we be setting up field hospitals just in case? opening up the public. We have this product that's maybe 95% effective in treating severe cases of COVID-19. Thereby you take away 90 to 95% of those deaths of COVID-19 that come along, come about. Where's the excuse there, right? If that product does come out and it's all that it's promised, it's actually, I think the phase three is going to be unblinded mid-January. So coming up probably in the next few weeks, so it'll probably be very exciting news we can talk about. But if you can get a product like that, where's the excuse going to come from? That's the thing Like the government has done nothing as far as preparation goes. Yeah. Like even if we do get access to this therapeutic in the next couple of months here, is there the infrastructure set up to be able to open the public back up and then treat those that do get a severe yeah. case. And then we can eliminate the risk of death and bring the risk of death. Well, not completely eliminate it, obviously, but really reduce it. It makes a ton of sense that that's something that we should be looking into and uh, preparing for. And I'm excited to read the science behind it. Cause I actually, I didn't know that there was a, a, a potential treatment for it. So, yep. Yeah. It's very exciting. I can even send the details when we're done a podcast. I just don't want to speak too much before we get look into it and just have kind of hard laid out facts to say to people. Yeah. That makes but, sense. Uh, my research isn't, isn't hollow. So to speak, what I just said is, is very uh, spot on, we should say. So it's very yeah. exciting news and even touching on, you know, not having the doctors demand these hospitals, you can have nurses, you can have nurses in school mm-hmm. uh, being able to administer these, I believe it is done through, it's either a shot or an IV. And, you know, you can have it administered by nurses. You don't necessarily need doctors, right? Once you figure out dosages and how to distribute it properly based off body weight, very intricate, obviously, I'm not going to try and wrap my head around it 
but I'm assuming nurses, nurses are quite capable of doing it. They're very smart people. So if you look at that, then it's another, another positive that we could have uh, to really open up the country. But speaking of an industry that's, you know, waiting for some good news like this, the airline industry, you want to fill us in on what's going on there? Yeah. So just a quick update for those that are uh, interested in the airline industry, which I'm sure some of you are and some of you aren't, but I will uh, just touch on Porter first, Porter Airlines. They're delaying their restart to March 29th at the earliest. Uh, This has been ongoing for months and months now. That'll make almost a full year of not flying for uh, Porter other than a couple charter flights here and there. So their their situation, I, I would assume, keeps getting grimmer and grimmer. They're lucky. Uh, a couple of years ago, they sold their uh, terminal building for like $750 million cash. And they only, they outright own 22 out of 26 of their aircraft, I believe. So financially, they're looking a lot better than a lot of other airlines are, or what you're typically seeing on a budget sheet for airlines. So I really hope that Porter can stick around and uh, keep servicing downtown Toronto and the business market there. It's a yep. incredible people that work for it. So as far as Air Canada is concerned, though, Air Canada has slashed seat capacity a further 25%. So they were already operating at one fifth of their 2019 capacity. They're now dropping that by another 25% and laying off 1700 more workers. The reason for this is because of the new testing that's required, uh, the demand for uh, Caribbean markets and stuff like that. And a little bit more of the travel market, whether you agree or disagree with that, it it is still happening uh, to some extent. But it's now become like getting a test three days prior to departure in a in a country that doesn't have the testing facilities set up like Canada does is very, very difficult to do. So it's a lot of people have canceled their flights. There's been a, a further reduction in revenue for Air Canada. And I'm sure WestJet's the same. They're seeing issues with it as well. I just have the stats for Air Canada here. So Air Canada, they've already laid off 20,000 workers. So another 1,700. It's uh, give or take at 21,700 workers now, which is an incredibly large amount of people and it's devastating that that's had to happen and that there's been no government support to get those employees back. Uh, and saying that the routes that Air Canada is suspending, Prince Rupert, Kamloops, Fredericton, Yellowknife, Comox and Sandspit, BC. I've actually been to Sandspit, BC, flown in there. Gander and Goose Bay in Newfoundland. Um, Air Canada is also extending the shutdown of operations at three other airports in St. John, Sydney and Penticton. So interesting little fact here, Cape Breton, for the first time since 1920, does not have an air service going to the island. Wow. I, I thought that that was absolutely mind-boggling, and it's the, that fact lies directly on the government's back. Uh, at the federal level, there's been no stimulus package still, but we do have a little bit of good news as far as the federal government is concerned. There's a new transport minister. His name is... Uh, Mr. Omar Algebra, I may have pronounced that last name wrong, so I apologize if I do. Uh, Mark Garneau, the former Transport Canada minister um, and also former astronaut, an incredibly smart guy, but did not do well in his position as a minister of Transport Canada. He was not received positively by many people within the industry. He has uh, taken a position of the Minister of Foreign Affairs, so congratulations to him. Uh, we're all excited to see a new minister at uh, the head of Transport Canada. Hopefully we can get something done in supporting the aviation industry here. So that's about, there's your update. That's a big update, big update. And I'm not even gonna touch on the airline industry because there's not much I can really say. You kind of crushed it there. 
big news actually on Justin Trudeau having a cabinet shuffle, essentially ousting members that aren't going to be seeking re-election. Uh, this is commonly done when, a, when an election is looming. And I've heard rumors through the political community that it, that could be early as the spring. Yep. It could be a spring 2021 election. And most polls have Trudeau winning favorably right now in the time of a pandemic. And all, most people are, are sitting back and, and they're going to be voting for the party that has taken it. And I quote the most serious or most seriously. You know, you look at the leadership and the opposition, Jagmeet Sin and Aaron O'Toole. In my eyes, Aaron O'Toole hasn't really done much since he's, he's become the opposition leader. Uh, especially their cabinet, shadow cabinet members haven't really questioned anything the, the Liberals have done on a grand scale and really pushed back on any regulatory issues pertaining to COVID-19. And then the NDPs don't even have the, the manpower to do that in, in Parliament. So interesting. And though I don't think I will be voting for Justin Trudeau, I do believe he is going to win the election, unfortunately, for uh, for me. <laughs> Interestingly enough, I uh, I'll just come out and say my my political views. I voted Trudeau last election. Uh, mm -hmm. So I voted liberal at the federal level. And then at the provincial level, I voted conservative. And now my vote would probably switch from conservative at the provincial level to exploring and really opening up and seeing what else is uh, available as far as provincial candidates go. I'm sure we won't be seeing anything for, uh, for a while since Doug Ford's got the majority and he's got the opportunity to win my vote back as well, of course. Um, but then at the federal level, I haven't been happy with the liberals. So I'd look at uh, look elsewhere there as well. So it's kind of interesting that if you want to talk it's about nonpartisan, I'm your, I'm your definition of it right there. Yeah, it's really good to do that. And it's refreshing to hear because a lot of people these days, they don't really seem to care who the leader is, but it is very important for the direction of the party and, you know, what the party's actually going to look to do. Mm -hmm. And it's funny, we talk about the provincial level, that last election was a landslide for the conservatives about two years ago. It was pretty hard not to after Kathleen Wynne butchered the yeah. province, sold hydro, highest debt per capita of any state or province in, in North America. So, and you had a guy in there like Patrick Brown, actually, I had, I had the privilege of meeting Patrick Brown at an event in Windsor, a very nice guy. He was actually more of a centrist than he was. I'd say, I'd say he was a center right, but uh, there's actually speculation whether or not it was a coup with everything that transpired with him. And I'd love to maybe cover that in another episode, do a lot of research on it. He's actually the current mayor of Brampton. I'm sure we haven't heard the end of him in provincial or federal politics, but uh, you know, as far as Doug Ford, I know a lot of people listening to this are probably frustrated with Doug Ford, but it is hard to measure political, I don't know, what should I even call them? Not conquest, but anyways, any achievements politically when it is COVID-19, right? So I guess more so the measurement now is how frustrated people are with the COVID-19 and, and obviously, running a province is more than just COVID-19, but right now it's hard to kind of wrap your head around that. It's so, interesting. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, no I was going to say, so next election, uh, it, it'll be interesting for me too, to kind of reevaluate where everything's at. Explore the, op the options we got. That's a good part about uh, the democracy in Canada that we do have multiple options to vote for. Yeah, but what you touched on there, just Doug Ford's kind of, it's it's been absolutely tough the first start of his uh, his term here. He is in for the four years. He's got the majority government. Like you said, it was a landslide for the conservatives. But it's going to be interesting to see that once we get through this pandemic, how he's goes about winning those votes back that he's lost. Because he's lost votes to people that are unsatisfied with him not doing enough and unsatisfied with people thinking that he's doing too much. Like it, for a politician in a, in a pandemic, 
it's clearly very difficult to please everybody. It's mm-hmm. uh, you can see it at any level of government, probably across the globe right now that it's impossible to please everybody. Everybody's going to have different views about what they think the pandemic is on far of the, like, should I be worried scale, like yep. one to 10 sort of thing. You know, some people think it's a big hoax, which is, I mean, a little crazy in my opinion. Other people think that it's the end of the world. So it's, it's, you, you really can't please everybody. You got to feel for the politicians right now. Yeah. And I never is, thought it, I'd say that. It is interesting to, to look at and the federal, the feds are actually in the driver's seat right now because most of the COVID-19 rollout in terms of precautions and, and vaccination is all done by the provinces. So smart of them to do it that way. Oh, it's just, it's almost just by the constitution default by the constitution, right? Yeah. They can't really stick their hand in the honey jar too much, even though Justin Trudeau would probably love that. It helps them though, because then they like people can't be pissed at the oh, 100%, federal government. Right? Cause I'm, I'm, I'm just sitting here saying, I think the, and the polls and I know people are polled in the last U S elections kind of like, Oh, screw the polls, but the polls in Canada are saying, you know, liberals would probably win a majority government. And I don't see any indication to think otherwise. Right. It's how can you really be mad at them? Like they're they're I'm angry with them and I'm upset, but I, I feel like I dig a little bit deeper than most people would. Mm-hmm. And if you have media bias outlets like maybe CBC that you're you're watching and that's that's funded by the federal government and tends not to speak out against liberals, especially historically, it's it's easy to just kind of be like, you know what, they've done a good job to me. I blame the province. I blame my I blame my premier for being an idiot. Yep. And I quote idiot, right? Mm-hmm. So the, pretty much the failures that they did have is the vaccination failure. I think they really failed us on vaccines. Whether you're pro-vaccine or not, they failed us on securing vaccines. You can get, chalk up a thousand excuses. End of the day, we don't have them here. We, they're not delivered. Yeah. And another one is that we have the second highest unemployment in the G7. Uh, but if you look per capita, we're up there in spending. We're up there in spending in our deficits. So we see an outlandish spending and not really much to show for it. So if you're if you want to do more research on that, just look into it. There, there are things that the federal government is doing right now and has done throughout the pandemic that despite the smokescreen of your provincial government, you should you should look at and you should ask questions. It's okay to ask questions. And that's a big one that you touched on there is probably the acquisition of vaccines. I saw a report today that uh, Canada is expected to get 1 million vaccines a week starting in April. Uh, but if you look at other countries, we're as far as like G7 countries are concerned, we're pretty far uh, behind as far as vaccinations go. There was no really internal effort other than I think there was one at McMaster to really develop a, a Canadian vaccine. We just kind of yeah. relied on on the other countries and we did what Canada's and the federal government's been doing throughout the whole pandemic is we just threw money at the problem yep. and didn't be progressive and reactive and proactive uh, and try 100%. and do something ourselves. And just like, just, it's just the same with the CERB, whether you agree with it or not. Like, all right, well, we've got a problem. Here's some money, here's some money, here's some money, here's some more money. You don't call oh well here's money anyways right so yeah and, and it's that, the same thing with the vaccines they're just whipping money across mm-hmm. the board trying to procure some but obviously the governments and the states and they like the, the pfizer vaccine is going to be distributed in can in america before it's going to be distributed in canada right like that's just a, a fact of the matter implore everyone to kind of do their own research and as you just said with mcmaster having their own vaccine and i even talked to people about this too i was like you know what we could have funded our own vaccine and really gone that road and and one of the retorts to that as well, 
through the federal government, we've kind of diminished a lot of our manufacturing capabilities. We wouldn't have been able to manufacture and distribute that anyways, if we made our own vaccine. So it's all stuff you guys should do research on and don't turn a blind eye to it because it is important. And these government are making decisions that, and it's seen now more than ever that they do have consequences on the actual population. I know a lot of people sit back and they say, hey, politics doesn't actually affect my life because you make a great point. Even in the US, you know, a president wins, does it really change your life all that much? Slightly, maybe. Obviously, it's a bit different with polarization down there, but even here, is it does it really change your life that much? Uh, in, in your lifespan with, you know, maybe increases in taxes here, or a program defunded or funded here, et cetera, et cetera. But you need to dig deeper than that. You, need, you see stuff like that in terms of, okay, we're going to slowly stop supporting manufacturing. Some governments, we're going to quickly and <laughs> stop supporting manufacturing like this government. And it has uh, consequences. Every decision has consequences. So everyone just pay attention. But I think we're good to move on. Yeah, I just want to touch on that uh, just really, really quick. Mm-hmm. It's a perfect example of you you kind of just voting. You don't really expect it to impact you. I've never really expected my vote to really impact me that much. But looking at the aviation sector right now, again, just real quick, 600,000 people uh, have been in fact, or impacted by the by the pandemic in the aviation industry, whether it's reduced wages, uh, complete loss of work, like it's, it's been absolutely incredible. And it's interesting to see how my vote for the liberal government has come back to kind of bite me in the butt there as far as the complete lack of support for the industry. So you touched on manufacturing, I just wanted to point out that aviation is for just another example of uh, some deficiencies there. So yeah, let's move on. Awesome. So what, what did I want to talk about next? There's some juicy stuff that I've done some research. I went private eye detective on a few issues that were headlining in the United States. Love it. The first one I'll start with is actually something from 2015, 2016, or actually even 2014, I believe. And some of you listening are going to be familiar with the, the crisis that happened in Flint, Michigan, the water crisis. I think we might be a bit more familiar with it because we lived on the border of Detroit. So it was kind of taught in our business school for me. But essentially, the former Republican governor, Rick Schneider, is being charged over the matter. He could face fines up to $1,000 and up to a year in prison. Now, the alleged offense date is April 25th, 2014, when a Schneider appointed, I'll talk about who Schneider is in a moment, when a Schneider appointed emergency manager who is running the struggling city carried out a money-saving decision to use the Flint River for water while a regional pipeline from Lake Huron was under construction. Now, essentially, the decision to cancel Flint's 30-year-old contract with the DWSD, which is the Detroit Water and Sewage Department, and switch to the Karanodi Water Authority was made in part because the new plan required the construction of an expensive pipeline that would add union jobs. Furthermore, Flint was under a tight money crunch. The coffers were running a bit low, and they could no longer afford to pay the pensions of city government retirees. Now, essentially, before we dive deeper into it, just kind of give a background on what actually happened in Flint. So from that, they decided to switch from the Detroit Water and Sewage Department to a new company that had to build a pipeline. And while they were building the pipeline, they took from uh, unclean source, essentially. It wasn't filtered properly. So what ended up happening is the corrosive water was not treated properly and released lead from the old plumbing into homes. And it became one of the worst man-made environmental disasters in the U.S. So do you, do you know anything about it? I, I don't know much. I wouldn't say I'm an expert on it. I, I just remember reading that for countless, like you'd think that an issue like this would happen for maybe a couple, couple of weeks and then it would get rectified, right? But I remember it was months and years that basically the, the water in Flint was, 
poisoned essentially is what it was like it had lead poison like the lead counts were too high and you could get lead poisoning from consuming the the water in flint and i remember the the issue dragging on for a lot longer than i thought was necessary yeah no and uh there was bipartisan support on on this measure it was an infrastructure act as i said flint was struggling financially so there was bipartisan support from democrats as well as the republican governor at the time rick schneider and his supporters to, to get this deal done. But essentially Democrats across the country blame Schneider first and foremost for the crisis. Uh, but actually Flint's been under the run of Democrats for decades during the, or at the time rather of the water crisis, the city had a democratic mayor and former president Barack Obama's environmental protection agency tried to cover up the issue. So you had people aware of it and I'll dive into that in a second, but you had people aware of this and what you've kind of seen the Democrats do now is rather than own up to what happened and, and the folly on both sides of the aisle, it's kind of seems like they've started to shift the blame. Now, do you think that's fair? So it sounds like the decision was made to basically change from the Detroit uh, water service to this. What's the new one? Uh, the new one's name is the Karanodi Water Authority. Okay, the Karanodi Water Authority. Uh, and it sounds like that decision was both backed by Democrats and Republicans. Yep. And now it, it appears that the Republican uh, governor of Michigan at the time is, is essentially the scapegoat. Would that be a fair analysis? Yeah, the, because the, the, into the next point I was actually going to talk about. So the administrator of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency had actually warned that the water crisis in Flint, Michigan could get big months before the EPA issued an emergency order requiring the state and city to take immediate action to protect residents um, and there's actually email correspondence to kind of prove that. So you have Democrat appointed leaders in the community and environmental protection heads that were aware of this issue and, and stayed silent yet Schneider is being seen as the scapegoat. Yeah. It's, it's interesting that, uh, you know, the issue did go on for so long. Like, was there something that could have been done or like rectified that could have essentially helped the citizens of Flint? Like what's, what well, was yeah. the hold up people as far asking, as that goes? People are asking questions. So back to McCarthy again, who was the head of the Environmental Protection Agency. She didn't actually use her congressionally mandated emergency powers. Uh, so there's something called the Safe Drinking Water Act, so the SDWA. Um, and she essentially could have seized control of the Flint water system. So under Section 1431, it says, and I quote, upon receipt of information that a contaminant that is present in or likely to enter a public water system or an underground source of drinking water that may be present that may present an imminent and substantial endangerment to the health of persons the epa administrator may take any action she deems necessary to protect human health and that was from provided from the guardian that quote so she had so everything like in her power done. yeah she had everything in her power to actually go over the governor's head and step mm -hmm. in and there's proof that she actually and and her organization had information about this before the public was made aware or arguably even before the city was made aware and they didn't step in and use emergency powers to fix the situation, probably due in large part to the scandal that it was caused, right? Mm -hmm. You had a, I believe it was a democratic push piece of legislation. Yes, it did create or did receive bipartisan support, but uh, driven by them and driven by a community that has kind of been run to the ground financially under Democratic or under Democrats. So I guess she kind of decided, you know, maybe I can get away with covering this up. Who's going to get access to my emails? Lo and behold, it comes out that she did know. But it just it still doesn't really make sense, right? Because Schneider's Schneider's the one to blame. And there's there's even further to kind of talk about 
millions of dollars eventually was given to Flint to fix the water problem. And the contractor that was actually hired to do it lacked the experience to replace the lead water pipes. And he was connected to Flint city officials who were also Democrats, as I mentioned. And furthermore, the, the investigation into the water crisis resulted in misdemeanor convictions against seven people, but they had eight pending cases that were dropped when the Democratic Attorney General Dana Nessel took office. So you could just have people being let, let off the hook. And as you said, he's, he's the scapegoat. It's pretty, it's pretty clear mm-hmm. and it's, it's quite sad. Okay, so here's some interesting stats I just looked up in regards to the, the water crisis and uh, the rectification that, it's, that it took. So uh, the start time, like when the issue was identified was April 25th, 2014. As of April, 2019, there was an estimated 2,500 lead service pipes still in place in Flint, Michigan. However, as of October 2nd, 2020, 26,232 water service lines have been excavated, resulting in the replacement of 9,769 lead pipes and the confirmation of 16,463 copper pipes. So that it took over like just way too long, quite frankly, yeah. 2014 to 2020 to, to solve the, the Flint water crisis issue is astounding. And it looks like there was potentially stuff that could have been done there on multiple levels of government specifically. We'll take a look at the federal government here. It, it sounds like the safe drinking water authority. Uh, they had the ability to, to kind of step in and help with the situation, but elected to for some reason not step in so whether that was a i mean it's got to be a political move right yeah and if people haven't learned by now politics is dirty and Mm -hmm. it seems that a lot of the time unfortunately politicians don't actually have the best interests of of the people uh, at heart and this is kind of just a perfect example of that you had what would have been a a big scandal turn into scandal we have we've never really seen before right in the united Mm -hmm. states you're having dirty drinking water you're having kids coming out with lead poisoning dirty politics leads to dirty drinking water exactly that's the headline right there and it's sad to see you had information and they didn't come forward with it and and people and children were were hurt and it's Mm -hmm. it's quite disappointing but i guess that's pretty much all i wanted to touch on for that so we can we can move on all right let's do it twitter ceo jack dorsey comments on trump's ban now I'm going to take some quotes from article. Actually, I want to quickly chime in and say where I got the, all the, all the data from the Flint water crisis was provided by the daily wire, the guardian reason and rudders. So quite a diverse mix there. I had to make sure to, to check in on some left leaning as well as right leaning news sources. But anyways, back to Jack Dorsey. So I'm just going to go through, read a couple of his quotes for context and you can kind of, we'll chat about it after. There's about Sounds four good. quotes and yeah, and then we'll chat about it. So his company's decision to ban President Donald Trump from the platform set a, as he said, dangerous precedent and said that it was ultimately a failure by the company to promote healthy conversation. Now he says, having to take these actions fragment the public conversation, they divide us. They limit the potential for clarification, redemption and learning and sets a precedent I feel is dangerous the power an individual or corporation has over a part of the global public conversation. Now, he also claimed the company did not coordinate with other tech companies with his decision to ban the president and that other companies either made their own choices or were emboldened by the actions of others. He says, yes, we all need to look critically at inconsistencies of our policy and enforcement. Yes, we need to look at how our service might incentivize distraction and harm. Yes, we need more transparency 
and our moderation operations. All this can erode a free and open global internet. Now, I'll get into that last part in a second. What, what do you, what's your first first take on what he said? It's I thought the whole thing about him getting banned from from Twitter and all these different social media websites was insane. It's it's unprecedented. It's something we've never seen before. Well, maybe it is with precedent, but uh, it's unlike anything that we've ever seen before, where uh, such a polarizing public figure is essentially silenced by these these mass media companies it's whether you disagree with it or not it brings into question that like what's up with freedom of speech you know like yeah it's it's a it's a smoke screen here man it's just kind of a bunch of bullshit you know profanity but you got to call it how it is he's coming out here and he's playing that fluff piece right oh you know he's he's beating around the bush maybe it was it was dangerous right yeah it was very vague where in there did they, they said they wouldn't do something like that again? Mm-hmm. They didn't. They said, oh, yeah, it sets a dangerous precedence perhaps, but we need to be more transparent with how we're going to do things. Many people came out and 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 criticized Twitter and, and Jack Dorsey in particular on how the platform has already repeatedly been accused of not equally enforcing its policies and not being transparent with its monetization. So you're kind of just kicking a dead horse. Yeah. Right? You're You're perpetuating something that's just over and over again that's just not true so it kind of leads me into my next point it actually is another social media point it was actually the head of instagram came out adam moseri came out and he said this is actually a big headline this is a very big headline so obviously instagram is owned by facebook right mm-hmm. and he came out and said and i quote we're not neutral so he admitted on facebook that Here's a quote from him. No platform is neutral. We all have values and those values influence decisions we make. We try and be apolitical, he said, but that's increasingly difficult, particularly in the U.S. where people are more and more polarized. So kind of the premise of why he was coming out and saying all this is that he was actually called out by tech writer Will Oramus regarding Facebook's announcement of Roy Austin, the formerly of the Obama administration to serve as Facebook, Facebook's VP of civil rights. So essentially they have a former Obama administration member coming in and, you know, civil rights, VP of civil rights, whatever that that's meant to be. And Aramis posted that here's a quote from Aramis. he says, this feels like the kind of move that Facebook could have made five plus years ago, if it hadn't been so intent at the time on portraying itself as a neutral platform and promoting online connection as an absolute good. I couldn't agree with that quote more. And it goes back to what Twitter just said, Jack Dorsey just said, they're going on and on about, this neutral stance and wanting to give everyone a voice and it's refreshing though. I don't like what he's saying. It's refreshing that they come out and finally they're saying, you know what? We're not neutral. We lean to the left mm-hmm. deal with it. Right. Because now what you're going to see is hopefully you're going to have more platforms like parlay pop up, even though parlay was just taken down. Finally, 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 this is actually monumental. Uh, a media conglomerate has come out and they have stated that no, they're not neutral they lean left. What do you think? I think it's not something that we definitely expected to see at the start of uh, 2020. Another list to add it to the list of things that are unexpected. Uh, I think that it's, I don't think it's necessarily right. Whether it's uh, a company saying they lead lean to the right or lean to the left. I think uh, especially with social media where it's, you're supposed to be able to get your voice out there that you need to, you need to have the freedom of speech there. You should be able to mm-hmm. say what you want to say. 
Um, to an extent, uh, I think that anything that incites violence, uh, regardless of whether it's on the left or right, needs to I'm, be, uh, I don't know the correct term here, basically limited. I think it should um, be checked, right? Yeah, checked. Yeah, yeah. I like that. Um, I think that you can definitely abuse the voice that you're able to get through social media, but uh, I think that it, it really needs to be examined whether it's all right to limit the voice of people. I mean, such obviously, yeah, it's such a gray area. Obviously, we don't want to see people being incited into like violence and stuff like that through social media and stuff and whatnot. But I don't think that that's overly common. And it's, it's interesting to see these, these companies now coming out and saying, yeah, we, we lean to the left or we lean to the right, although it's more of them saying they lean to the left right now. And I think it's, uh, it's, it's really weird, quite frankly. Yeah. And if you sit back and you don't think that there's any collusion between the different social media platforms, you're a goofball. Oh, they talk to each other for sure. Like if you don't think that there's even a shred of possibility of that being the case, you're a goofball. Yeah. I don't care what anyone says. So it is refreshing in a sense, as I said, but it's also demoralizing uh, on the other hand, because you had a literally a centrist platform and it was dominated more so by, by right-wing people because they were kicked off other platforms in parlay, but you had a platform that was open to anybody say what you want, say what you will go on there. You can be checked by other people. So what's, what's parlay. The only parlay I know is my 18 parlay that I'm going to hit on the, <laughs> the NHL tonight. So parlay was a, was essentially a, a version of Twitter in a sense. It was a, okay. a platform, an uncensored platform that you could go on to that was populated a lot of people by people that were banned off different social media platforms. So they go, they kind of go on there and they can kind of just say whatever they want. They could speak and it was getting a lot of traction. It was becoming hmm. quite a popular space due in large part to what Adam Mosseri just kind of said, right? <laughs> These are left-leaning companies. Maybe I can go to a space where I don't have to worry about being cracked down on because I don't agree with the left. Yeah. And what they did is they took it off all of the stores. App store is gone. Google store, Amazon, everything. The, the app has been wiped off and they said it was a lack of censorship. So they weren't actually censoring people enough with, they weren't monitoring fake news, et cetera, et cetera. So the hypocrisy is quite hilarious because you have someone like Jack Dorsey coming out and saying, uh, let me find the quote here. Such an interesting subject and like difficult subject to really touch on. Right. Because like on one hand of the spectrum, everyone should be able to say what they want to say and whether, and on the other hand of the spectrum, if what people say is inciting yeah. danger to society, whether it's far left or far right uh, well, well, members what, of society. Yeah, you're, you're right. And here's what I was getting at. He's, so Jack Dorsey said, and sets a, a precedent I feel is precedent I feel is dangerous. The power an individual or corporation has over part of the global public conversation. His words, not mine. Mm -hmm. And then a couple of days before that, Parlay is taken off app stores because they didn't do just that. Because they didn't use the power of the corporation to essentially influence global public conversation. They let it be. They said, here's a platform. You say what you want. And they kind of just went with the natural order of things. People are going to check other people. Yeah. Right. People are going to check other people. So he's coming out and he's basically saying, and if you didn't know any better, you could be like, well, this guy's supporting Parlay. And they've just been taken off the app store. It makes no sense. Boggles my mind. Quotes like this coming out. I don't know what you, if you have anything to add on that, but. 
Well, I think the the best part about social media is the ability to have discussion. And if you're limiting voices on one side, then you get into the issue of uh, like, say all these right-wing people, like alt right-wing or whatever, they go to uh, parlay. And then now all they have, as far as discussion goes, is like this very right-wing agendas. Mm-hmm. And then it, it adds to the divisiveness of society. I feel, 100%. I think it's very important to be able to have discussion and, by limiting voices, we are limiting the ability to have discussion, which could actually, in my opinion, contribute even even greater to the to the problem at hand here, as far as divisiveness is concerned in the United States of America and and across the world. Quite frankly, it's not just a, a centralized issue in the USA. Yeah, and, and speaking of uh, divisiveness, you know, Trump was just impeached again for a second time by the House. It's not going to pass because this Republicans still control the Senate. I don't believe there's enough animosity amongst. Republican senators to actually impeach him. But talk about polarizing, right? And we touched on the last podcast, he had an opportunity of the Democrats to mend the fence and start healing the nation. This is just adding fuel and fuel and fuel to the fire. And I, I was just watching Como on CNN. He's like, this isn't over. This isn't over. You know, like he's like another, you know, and I quote attack of these brutes is coming in. And it's, and if it does happen, you know why? Because they didn't just let it be and try and heal and acknowledge that there are crazy people out there and bringing the normal people together and try and heal the nation. Instead, they chose the divisive route where they're putting fuel on the fire. Let's try and impeach them. Let's kick them out. What's that going to do? What's that going to do? You have, what a week left. What's that going to do? It's going to fuel these people to do it again. I think what they're trying to accomplish, at least in my opinion, is an impeached president cannot run for a second term. So I think the yeah, Democratic you, you, Party is looking forward it. to 2024. Yeah, you hit it right on the head. There it is. Politics 101, mm-hmm. right? It's They're feeding us this mode or this uh, MO that it's, we're doing this because he's inciting violence and he's, he's unfit to rule. What's the real reason? You just said it. What's the real reason? You just said it. They don't want him running again. Yep. So, you know what? Just come out and say that. Uh, absolutely. Stop being cowards and stop adding fuel to the fire by hiding behind your smoke screen and come out and say it. It's cowardly. Even if it's they, disgusting. Even if they said, yeah, we were impeaching Trump because we think he's a, d- a danger to society and we want to limit his ability to run I for office ever it. again. Be clear. Be clear with the citizens. Own it. And, Own it instead of being cowards. Yeah. It's it's craven, really. It's it's sad and, and sad that the U.S. people have to go through this. So. Well, you see it all over politics where people don't say what they actually think. And, no. Or they don't state what they're actually trying to do. There's hidden agendas across every level of government uh, and it's just it's absolutely demoralizing for citizens because you you don't know who to trust you don't know what to do or say so it, it makes it very difficult uh, to be able to form you know political opinions and understand what needs to be done to bring the country back together yep you're right and uh i don't really have much else to say today maybe we could end it with uh, on a lighter note maybe pick a song or something that we're listening to Let's do it. You go first. I'll check my Spotify here because I'm still bumping to baby nonstop. All right. Uh, it's called Never Gonna Radio Edit by uh, Ark North. Oh, I got mine. Mine it is a bang. Mine is uh, Hot by Gunna, I believe. Let me. Yeah, Hot Feet Gunna. It's by Young Thug. The reason that I'm choosing this song, it's explicit. Yeah, if you're young, don't listen to it. Um, <laughs> It's the Leafs win song. Oh, okay. <laughs> and the Leafs won last night against your Montreal Canadiens, but we'll touch on sports maybe next, Deppy. Yeah, we can touch on it now. If you want, quickly, just the Habs-Leafs game. It was a good game. The refs pissing me off. 
that fourth goal for you guys, cl- easy clearing attempt. Ref gets in the way. Hit a, yeah, hit off the ref, right? Yeah, he's, and he's in the wrong spot. Yeah. Get out of the way. And then he points down, oh, that's a goal. What a dickhead. <laughs> he should be fired. I'm serious. He should be fired. He should hang up the skates. He, he, I think he, he should be promoted. Give him more games. And then a couple calls you had, like Anderson, do they call it interference? Near the near the half boards there. It made no sense. The guy had the puck and he just hit him. Yeah. Interference. There's slashes on Toffoli that were misses, stick shatters, no call on the least. It was just and then you had a big mistake by Shea Weber clearing the puck five on three. That's when the game really shifted. That's a tough one, yeah. Um I think uh as far as the refs go, well I personally, I mean I know the game came out in my favor. Uh I'm gonna give them a little bit of cut them a little bit of slack. It's their first time really for some of them, right? Seeing games since since March, they didn't have the preseason to warm up or anything like that. So maybe they're a little jittery, a couple loose calls there. I thought there could have been like even that Simmons play on Shea Weber where he brought him down kind of when uh, Weber joined the rush there. Yeah. Yeah. So I, th- I definitely thought that was a trip. I was like, oh, well, Simmons going to the box, but yeah, that didn't happen. So I think that I think this season's going to take a couple of games to really get everything flowing as far as teams are concerned, personnel is concerned. And I think we'll probably see some refing as well. But uh, Anderson was buzzing, so I'm pretty excited about that. Yeah, Josh, not Freddie. Yeah, Josh, not Freddie. So, should we end it there? Let's wrap her up. All right. Always, kids, always remember, wrap it up. <laughs> <laughs> and this was sponsored by Trojan. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we wish. Yeah, we might have to bleep that out because they'll sue us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or you can just say non-sponsored by Trojan. Yeah, we're not. We're not. All but- right. If there's any uh, representatives listening, we're open to it. We're open to it. All right, buddy. I will catch you in the next one. All right. Take care.